This B-Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. Loved and trusted by more than 1 million teachers, IXL enhances your teaching and takes work off your plate so you can make an even bigger impact on your students. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and helps you assess student performance through actionable, real-time insights. Strengthen daily instruction, close knowledge gaps quickly, and set every student up for success. Want to bring IXL to your school? Learn more at IXL.com B-E. That's IXL.com B-E. We are proud to partner with MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Students can easily create and manage time for flex blocks, wind time, activity periods, RTI, counselor and teacher appointments, and so much more. Even my favorite, Synergy Time. And with its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, my flex learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com slash B-E. Welcome to the Cybertraps podcast. I'm Jethro Jones coming to you from Washington. I'm the founder of the B Podcast Network of which Cybertraps podcast is a proud member and author of the book, School X and How to Be a Transformative Principal. I'm a former school leader at all levels of K-12 education. Greetings, everyone. I'm Frederick Lane, an author, attorney, and educational consultant based in Brooklyn, New York. I'm the author of 10 books, including most recently Cybertraps for Educators 2.0, Raising Cyberethical Kids, and Cybertraps for Expecting Moms and Dads. Jethro and I have teamed up to bring timely, entertaining, and useful information to teachers, parents, and others about the risks arising from the use and misuse of digital devices. Over the coming weeks and months, we'll be talking to some of the world's leading experts from the fields of education, parenting, sociology, and cyber safety. Join us as we look at what it takes to better navigate our increasingly high-tech world. For more information or to donate to our work, please visit centerforcyberethics.org. The Center, right, the Center for Cyber Ethics, a 501c3 independent nonpartisan educational institute, is the producer of the Cybertraps podcast, and the organization is dedicated to the study and promotion of cyber ethics as a positive social force through research curricula development, publishing and media, professional training, and public advocacy. So, Jethro, both you and I are lining up some of that professional development and public advocacy. Yeah, it's uh, it's very exciting and uh, happy to be in this world where we're doing it. I've got a trip to New England this fall. Got a couple of webinars with uh, Arizona and North Dakota, uh, maybe something with some other states. We'll see how it all turns and where things end up. No, that sounds great. Well, I will be at the Professional Practices Institute in Providence, Rhode Island, roughly about the same time that you're in New England. So we're hoping that our paths will cross uh, when I'm there. And then I'm in that lovely negotiation phase, potentially with the Hawaii Education Association. I've been blessed to go out there two or three times, and I would certainly love to go back out and talk to them about the subject of today's podcast. Want to know one of my biggest frustrations with EdTech? Having too many tools and not enough time to use them right. They require too much training and it takes too much effort to implement it effectively. That's why it makes such a difference that IXL can do the job of dozens of individual tools. So I have everything I need for instruction and assessment in one place. IXL is research proven to accelerate achievement. Studies across 45 states show that IXL schools outperform non-IXL schools on state assessments and independent research from Johns Hopkins University verifies that IXL meets ESSA Tier 1 standards. With those results combined with IXL's teacher-friendly reputation, what more could you ask for? I'm sure you want to increase achievement for all students. Find out how IXL can help. 
Visit IXL.com slash BE for a demo. That's IXL.com slash BE. So why don't you lay in and let us know what we're talking about? Yeah. Well, today we're going to get super dorky and nerdy and we're going to talk about policies, which is everybody's <laughs> favorite thing. Um, and so and legalistic. as Yes, <laughs> that's right. How how do you do this stuff without getting in trouble or uh, how do you make it so that you can get people in trouble for using it inappropriately? I mean, really, that's what policies come down to. And almost all policies are written from the beginning of someone made a stupid mistake. Right. And and that is like we've all seen the policies where it's like, oh, I know the story behind this one. For example, I've got a great story about this. <clears throat> there was a wall. Uh, at one of the schools that I was principal of and uh, somebody had paint had done an activity with kids and kids painted it. And it just turned out completely horrible, like (laughs) total bomb. It was awful, ridiculous. And it created such an issue that there was a policy that students are not allowed to paint walls. Like that policy was created And I suggested that we have the students create a mural on the inside of the building, not knowing all the history about this. And boy, were people quick to point out the policy that had been created by a principal previous to me because of allowing kids to paint walls in the building. And it just wasn't going to happen. So what we're talking about is maybe we get a little preemptive and, and start creating some good policies before we do something stupid with AI. That's kind of what we're talking about. Right. Well, and a couple of quick, you know, uh, tie-ins to what you're saying. Number one, the likelihood that someone will do something stupid with AI is extremely high because (laughs) there's a lot of confusion about this new technology. People are going to start playing with it. Maybe it's not fully understood. So there's that. And then I think the other thing is that we uh, and and you were, I think, really smart to get ahead of the curve here. We were starting to do some research for this podcast, and there is so little information out there about what schools should be doing with their policies with respect to AI. Yeah, there's there's not a lot. And and of course, the first gut response is, well, let's block it. Let's lock it down. Let's make it not accessible. And Mm -hmm. all that does is create equity issues, right? Because those who have access are still going to use it, even if we are, quote unquote, not allowed to do it um, in in our in our network, for example. So one of the things that I've talked about on transformative principle and in a couple of the webinars that I've done is having a an A plus framework for adopting AI. And so. Uh, I want to start there because the A-plus framework is a way to to think about a lot of different aspects. And I don't think that this is the be-all and end-all. Don't get me wrong. (laughs) I don't think this is the the perfect answer to all of our problems, but it at least gets us thinking about some of the things that we don't think about uh, enough in my mind. So So, yeah, go ahead and expand that. What do you mean when you say A-plus? So A-plus is an acronym for the five key things that you should be paying attention to when it comes to adopting AI. So the A stands for accessibility. The P stands for privacy and ethics. The L stands for learner centricity. The U stands for usability. And the S stands for sustainability. Um, So accessibility is really about how accessible it is to people. Can people mm-hmm. use it regardless of their their language proficiency? Like, is it available mm-hmm. in different languages? Can people use it um, even if they have disabilities? Is it accessible in that universal design kind of way? Um, or is there is there a way to make it so that everybody can have access to it and be able to find success from it? Um, so that that's the first thing. Uh, when we and think about, I'm, I'm sorry, but this obviously gets to the issue of digital divide too. Yes, uh, you know, in this, you know, just the very basic online access issue that we saw during the pandemic as being a real problem. Totally. And so when we think about accessibility, we think about how easy is it for someone to use this? Do we have barriers in place that prevent people from having success with it? Uh, because of because of what we're doing or because of how it's set up. So 
for example, like if a web page doesn't have screen reading technology on it, then then it's useless mm. to somebody who can't read or can't see. And so uh, so you need to make sure that the things you're adopting have those things baked in. And I think that OpenAI has done a pretty good job of making things accessible in that regard. And there are some things that you can do online that make it difficult to have things be accessible. And, um, and sometimes those are like uh, design first uh, shortcuts that people take to make things look nice, but then they don't actually mm -hmm. act nice. And, <laughs> and so they make it difficult for people to, to see and understand what is, what is there on your page. And this is a this is an overarching issue for educators. Then, is what you're saying, yeah. that in terms of rolling out new technology in a classroom or in a school, these are some of the considerations that they need to take into account. Yeah, and and we already think about this with uh, students who have disabilities and whatnot. We're already thinking about making sure that things are always accessible to all of our students and not just to some of our students. Mm -hmm. uh, so the next piece is privacy and ethics. And this one is, is really tough because the level of trust that you have to have that somebody's going to keep their word or not violate those things, it has to be really high. And even if they say they're not going to do it, that, that doesn't mean that they're not going to. And so you have to have some amount of skepticism, but most importantly in my mind is you have to be asking the questions as you're going through the adoption process, you can't just say, okay, well, we'll just use this and then ask about privacy and ethics later. You need to start <laughs> there. This includes things like bias and, and all that kind of stuff too. Sure. And, and as you know, um, I have uh, more than a passing interest in privacy. Yes. And <laughs> so this is actually one of the topics that I've really started to pay attention to. And um, as I've written about numerous places, and you and I have done a couple of podcasts on it, you know, FERPA is directly relevant to this conversation. And so you've got a real potential for FERPA violations with materials being uploaded to these chatbots for analysis or for use and whatever the student's trying to do. So that's number one. And then number two, there have been some serious concerns raised about the uh, level of protection that these chatbots give to the information that they take in. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's the potential for hackers, there's the potential for reuse. Uh, obviously, these large language models are analyzing everything, you know, which is sort of an implicit privacy concern. So I, I think that schools need to pay particular attention to that aspect of your a plus framework because mm -hmm. i think we have some known issues right there yeah so for example if a teacher is using chat gpt and they're just like logging on creating an account and then they're putting in student information to analyze mm -hmm. it and get feedback or uploading student uh um essays or whatever to get feedback on those or or anything that you're doing that is a potential ferpa violation because OpenAI has already said they are using that data to train future models. And in my mind, that's an inappropriate use of the student data. Mm -hmm. If you are approaching the uh, the OpenAI API, which is like going through the back door with permission, then mm -hmm. there's a way for them to not use that in their training data. And they have said that you can you can set the API up to not use that data in their training of future models. So one, you've got to have trust that they're going to do that. Uh, one of the companies that I've been doing a lot of work with is called School AI, and mm -hmm. they have created a what they're calling a FERPA compliant chat GPT experience, oh, which interesting. what they're able to do is they've been able to make sure that uh, OpenAI has agreed that they're not going to use that data for training and that the data is going to be separated and not going to be uh, combined with other data or anonymized or anything like that. So, yeah. so they're offering what they call a, a FERPA compliant chat GPT, which I think is a pretty, pretty good step in the right direction and something that people should be focused on. And one of those things that people probably aren't going to pay much attention to, to be honest, right? 
Well, of course. I mean, one of the issues that we've talked about constantly is the speed with which this technology hits schools. And it's got some really cool aspects. And I think teachers are genuinely excited about the pedagogical implications and honestly, the professional implications. In our original conversations, I may have mentioned the British teachers who created a very early uh, chatbot tool where teachers could sit down at the end of each semester and put in bulletin points about their students, relatively anonymous. I mean, they could use even fake names as long as the teacher knew who they were talking about. But then the chatbot would write the year-end evaluation for the teachers. And so the teachers were selling, these two teachers who programmed this were basically saying, you can do five year-end reviews for free, but then pay us, I think it was like five euros to do 50 or something like that. Yeah. So yeah. it was a pretty clever money-making thing. And, you know, I tested out the free version just to see how it worked. But it would be so easy to cross over into the inappropriate disclosure piece. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. you know, you started to get parents feeling really uncomfortable with the idea that some piece of software was evaluating their child. Yeah. And, you know, just to calm everybody's fears, all grades are made up anyway. So (laughs) that's going to be very calming. I think that's (laughs) (laughs) don't worry. The teachers are just making it up too, despite what they may say with rubrics and all that kind of stuff. But we won't get it. No, no, no. My wife is grading (laughs) summer classes right now. (laughs) Just (laughs) I can't even begin to weigh in on this. Yes. Yeah. You better not keep yourself safe there. (laughs) I I will say that with confidence because I know what goes on. Anyway, let's let's move on to the L part of the A plus framework, which is learner centricity. Yeah. So for me, this is vitally important that the learner has to be at the center of it. And if you are adopting tools that make life easier for teachers, but mm-hmm. not better for students, you're missing the boat. Mm-hmm. And so uh, students are the reason why we are in schools. And that's what we're there for. We're there for them. We're not there for the, the adults. We're not there for the, the teachers. We are there for the students. And so the learners need to be at the center of these decisions and, and how it's going to benefit them. That doesn't mean that we can't adopt tools that do make life easier for teachers and provide some side benefit to students as well. But we really need to think, how does this tool make life better for our students in whatever way we're thinking about it? Let me give a brief example to help illustrate it. One of my schools switched to a new student information system, the district did, and the student information system was where we housed everything. That was the 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 master record everything went in there and the reason why we adopted it was because it made running reports at the district level really easy Mm -hmm. what they did not pay attention to was that every act at the school level took five more clicks than the previous student information system that we had Mm -hmm. and so the burden came onto the school secretaries and the teachers Because taking attendance used to be a very simple, easy thing. Now it took multiple clicks for each student that was absent. And so it was kind of like, you know, if I just don't mark this kid absent and heaven forbid they came in late after I'd already marked them absent, it was like a big big nightmare. And so we really need to focus on, it may make things better for you at the district level, but you've really got to focus it on the learners and how it's impacting them and their day-to-day life also. Yeah, that's that's an interesting one. I I the the learner centricity is is a lovely concept. We might want to work wordsmith. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Tell me about it. <laughs> but but that being said, um I think it's such an elegant concept because having spent 10 years on a school board, I know we grappled with this all the time. Yeah, And, you know, you've got administrators, you've got the union, you've got individual teachers who are doing a really difficult job. And understandably, they want to make that job easier. Mm-hmm. But if if they do lose sight of what you started out with, the idea that we're there to really educate the kids and make sure they're getting the best education possible... Um, then it's really possible for them to get lost in the shuffle. And yeah. 
I'm sure you had those pressures as a principal, you know, in oh, terms yeah. of what teachers wanted to do, this will be so much easier, but then you're really just denigrating what the kids are getting. Yeah. Yep. That's, that's a very real thing. That's part of why this had to be a part of the framework for me is yes. because I, I had many battles where teachers were saying, we can't do this. It's too hard, but it's definitely better for the kids. And my response was always, then we're going to do it. So right. for example, I'm being real controversial here today. I wasn't planning on this, but this is how it goes. <laughs> Say, I'm drawing um, this out of you. <laughs> that's right. You sure are. So uh, I believe that it is unethical for us to assign homework to students because we should not try to control how they spend their time at home with their families. Outside of the classroom. Right? Outside of the classroom. So for me, my response to my teachers was, look, I don't care what homework you're giving. But if there is ever a conflict, I am always going to side with the student because I think it's unethical for you to do that. Now, that was my very bold, broad stance. And once I made that stance and said, I'm putting the students first and saying a homework, we should not be telling them how to spend their time at home. That's the line in the sand that I'm drawing. Mm. Once I took that stand, all the problems with homework just disappeared because everybody knew if I was, if there was an issue with homework, that's how I was going to decide. I said very clearly, students come first in this. We should not be telling them how to spend their time at home. Now, anybody is welcome to disagree with me on that, but it made it very clear where I stood in that regard. Right. Sure. And if, if a kid wanted homework, then they could get it. No problem. I don't care. If a teacher wanted to assign homework, she could assign it. I don't care. But if there's a problem, then I, this is how I'm going to make a decision in this matter and I'm going to side with the kid all the time. Right. So the, and, and just to clarify in my own head, because God knows looking back on school, I would have loved that approach. Yeah, I bet. <laughs> but, you know, it's, it's easy to imagine a scenario, right, where the teacher is uh, assigning homework because obviously there's no prohibition against it. Right. And the student says, I'm tired. I don't want to do homework. I just want to hang with my family or whatever, or I'm playing sports and I'm not going to turn the homework in. And then the teacher marks down that student. Yeah. That's where the situation would arise for you. Right. That's right. And I'd say, you can't do that. That's not okay because we need to, we need to put the emphasis on the student and help them live a fulfilling life. It's not just about doing academic work. And I always drew the analogy of if I told you, as your principal, that you had to go home and spend an additional two or three hours after working all day long on work, you'd be furious, right? And they say, well, we already do that. And I say, but I'm not telling you to do that. I'm not saying you have to go and do this. Imagine if I did, and you have all these other things that you want to do. How would you feel about that? And every teacher to a T says, well, I don't want you to assign me stuff to do outside of my contract hours. In fact, I even am part of a union that prevents you from doing exactly that. (laughs) You can't do that. Right. (laughs) Right. So and let me ask you this. I'm curious because I I think that's such a great point. And and I realize we're drifting a little bit and we'll get back. But how did the parents react? I mean, what kind of feedback did you get from parents on that? Well, parents appreciated it because they were still in control of their home family time. If they wanted homework, then they could tell the teacher, please send my kid home with homework. And I want my kid to be spending time doing homework at night. And that was totally fine. I I don't mind that. That's different, the parent asking for it, than it is the teacher forcing it to happen. And so parents got to choose. How do you want to spend your time at night? Do you want to put your kid in sports and do that? Do you want to just spend family time? Do you want them to play video games all night? Do you want them to have homework? Any of those (laughs) are your right as a parent to decide And we're not going to get in the middle of it. But that was because we always put the student first. And not everybody agrees that that is student first thinking. But but I I really did. And so that's where I put that in place. Well, and just putting on my parent hat for a second, Jethro, I would have loved to have had you as my kid's principal in that sense. Because, you know, at least for one one of my guys, you know, the homework was a battle. And so it felt like I got co-opted into this enforcement mechanism, you know, with the school. And it was difficult. It was a real strain. You want to talk about family time. That was not family time. No. Yeah. (laughs) Anyway. 
Yeah, I've I've heard a lot of stories about how homework was a a divisive moment in uh, families, and you do know, not look back on it fondly at all. No, and and I don't think that that we should be put in the middle of a battle between parents as schools. It just doesn't make yeah. any sense. I don't know why you'd want to sign up for that, but you know, like you you don't want to be the person who's causing strife and contention in homes when there's already plenty of that you know and i do think ai would tell us that (laughs) that's right anyway moving back along the u the u is about usability and this is different from accessibility uh who fred who taught you how to use amazon.com what what did you go to a seminar on that oh good god no of course not of course not, I, right? I wanted to buy something and there are buttons and I pressed the buttons and That's the thing right. showed up. <laughs> this this is what usability is all about. How easy is it for someone to just start using it? If you need to attend a multi-day training to use a piece of AI software, it's probably not that great. And so if you, like there, the professional development that comes with these software packages or these tools that you purchase needs to be more about the framework and mindset about how to approach the work, not how to use the tool. Because if you need to spend time training how to use the tool, then it's probably too complicated for it to ever really take on. And so again, this is an opinionated stance, but it needs to be simple for teachers to use and it needs to be instantaneous, needs to be simple for students to use and they need to understand and get it right away. Mm-hmm. I agree with that. Let's talk about flex time in schools. If you've been listening for a long time, you know how important I think this is. It gives us more time for personalized learning, increasing choice and agency for students, and the increased enrollment that comes with it, dedicated time for intervention and enrichment. And overall, as school leaders, it gives us and our faculty more tools to increase academic achievement. But the implementation and management of flex time can be so tough. Tricky logistics and a lack of clear accountability systems can prevent teachers from buying in and can hold us back from ensuring students make good use of their time. I'm pleased to share that MyFlex Learning provides a solution to these challenges and more. MyFlex Learning helps you create and manage flexible time for any purpose. And with seamless SIS integration, a student locator, flexible daily rostering, and an intuitive mobile app, it eliminates the common challenges of implementation and management. Want to see for yourself? Visit myflexlearning.com B to learn more about it and receive $500 off the first year of use. That's myflexlearning.com B-E. So the last piece is sustainability, uh, which is what is the long-term cost of this going to be? And based on your values and what your district believes, you need to look at this in your own light of uh, cost of time, cost of uh, resources, like energy use and things like that, cost of um, financially continuing to support it, and uh, anything else that you can think of what is this going to cost us to use over the long term? And you may find that some AI tools, the the promise is that they're going to save you time and make things, give you more time. And in reality, it could be just the opposite. And you just need to pay attention and ask those questions of what is this really going to cost us? Well, and and I think that you're you're highlighting some of the legitimate out-of-pocket costs I think one of the things that I've been observing, um, you know, particularly because Amy is on the front lines of this with her uh, students this summer, is what are the costs to your educators, to your staff, in terms of uh, fact-checking what these chatbots are producing? Because, you know, for instance, Amy's teaching uh, an art class, and oftentimes she's getting answers that the students generate where the art is utterly misidentified in terms of its period, mm-hmm. or even sometimes its artist. So, you know, then it becomes a question of, can you trust, and we get back to that issue of trust, can you trust the output? Yeah. And, you know, what burden does that put on your staff to make sure that the students are getting good information, that, you know, these things are producing useful, getting back to usability, we'll do that slight variation. Yeah. They're getting useful 
training, useful education out of it. Yeah. And, you know, so that brings up a whole other host of questions, but we, we won't go into all of that, but the costs are, are real and they are not just monetary, right? Right. They're, right. Uh, you want to make sure that what you're adopting is, is going to be worthwhile. Going back to the student information system, the mm-hmm. amount of training that we had to go through to use this software at a very basic level was completely ridiculous. First day of teachers being back and the secretary is gone all day long, learning how to only enter purchase orders into this new system. Oh my God. It yeah, was, I, yep. Oh, it was awful. So terrible and so bad for morale and our school mm-hmm. and everything. But nobody thought about that. Nobody. Nobody thought like, oh, we're going to need to spend 40 hours training every secretary on how to use this tool in the first week before they can do anything. Well, you know, that's probably not a good way to to adopt it. And I will tell you, that is specifically the product of a good sales pitch. Where the sales pitch, you know, where the sales rep is coming in and they are dazzling probably an administrator or a school board, depending on who's listening to the pitch, who doesn't necessarily understand the technology to begin with about the savings down the road. And your point is so important that there are costs that you really need to be skeptical about from the get-go. Absolutely true. Especially in AI, where the promise is more time. I mean, you've really (laughs) got to pay attention to it because- you know, if if you're if you're going from spending one hour a week uh, or one hour a day planning your lessons, and then you bring in an AI tool, and now you're spending two hours a day planning your lessons because you're planning so much more and you can do so much more, is that really the thing that you should be doing? And it's very easy. I've spent a lot yeah. of time on ChatGPT massaging, going back through, adjusting, when if I just sat down and did the thing, it actually probably would have been faster to do it my own way that I used to always do it. Uh, it's it's going to be a hard truth. We're all going to have to relearn. It, it sure is. <laughs> yep. So I, I want to examine a couple of different policies here um, and yeah. really spend a lot of time on what I think is a good policy uh, from Peninsula School District that I've that I've shared a couple of times. Um, and, and we'll I have really... the link in the, in the show notes too. Yes. And this was sent to me by somebody else from a different state. Peninsula School District is in Washington. Um, but mm-hmm. uh, so I haven't gotten official permission to share this. So I pray that ah. they'll be okay with it. They do have the Google Doc on viewable by anyone. So uh, yeah, I'm not feeling know. like it's super locked down. To yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so anyway, so we'll we'll talk about that in a second. The thing, yeah, the place where I want to start though is just the absolute irony of principals asking for AI to do their jobs for them and create policies and write things, mm-hmm. while at the same time saying, "I don't want the kids to be able to do what I'm trying to do with AI myself." Yeah, um, exactly. And and we need to recognize that if if we're enticed to do it, surely kids are enticed to do it for schoolwork and stuff. And so starting from we don't want kids to cheat is really the wrong place to go. And and so the first one is a plagiarism policy that was sent to me in an email. I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'm not going to share the whole thing because it was sent to me privately from one person. I don't want to do that. But Mm -hmm. specifically on this is is starting from the idea that using AI is is tantamount to plagiarism. Totally the wrong approach, in Mm -hmm. my opinion. That if that's where you're starting, then you're starting in a negative spot to begin with, and Mm -hmm. it's going to be impossible to make up ground to get into a positive arena. And so they basically go through and say, you know, uh, plagiarism is bad, you shouldn't do it, and plagiarism is doing all these regular things and using AI to generate content without proper acknowledgement. And, and so going through like prevention education, that's all fine and dandy, but you're still talking about AI and plagiarism being on equal footing 
And I think that's mm. the wrong place to start from the word go, especially if you're using yeah. AI to write the plagiarism policy. <laughs> well, <laughs> yes, the, we do need a hypocrisy detector. Hypocrisy. That's right. <laughs> yes, I agree with you. I, In general, I think everybody does better with respect to acceptable use policies. If you begin by talking about what is acceptable to begin with, how are we going to right. make use of these tools? And, you know, look, as educators and as parents, we're not delusional. We know that kids are going to try out this new technology because everybody's talking about it. They think it's exciting. They're fascinated by it. And honestly, it's super easy to use. Mm -hmm. totally. So why wouldn't they? Yeah. Exactly. And and honestly, uh, they should. Uh, yeah. If for no other reason than to learn and understand how it actually works. Once you actually start using it and seeing what it creates, then you can say, oh, this is terrible. I should just do this myself. <laughs> I'm not going to waste time on this. But if you need something that doesn't matter and just needs to get something out there, by all means, just sure. use it because yeah. it it doesn't matter anyway. Uh, well, and, and you know, a, a great example, you know, I, I have periodically worked as a journalist and, and written up different things. And, you know, we we would be kidding ourselves if we didn't recognize that there is a universe of small one to two paragraph stories, like mm -hmm. a brief summation of last night's Red Sox game. You know, it's just going on a mobile app like ESPN, just a quick roundup of the game, what have you. That's not Ernest Hemingway territory. That is not James J.R.R. Tolkien. It is just a quick by the numbers recitation of what took place. There's absolutely no reason a chatbot can't do that. And, you know, you're not really getting a huge value added if you make some person sit down and do 30 of those or however many games there were last night, that kind of thing. There's definitely a use case for this kind of automatic text generation. Where people are struggling, I think, philosophically, and I think it's reflected to some degree in the first example you gave, is that we're craving ways to maintain the human input and to figure out how we're going to judge the improvement of students. And that, I think, is what has a lot of people concerned. I mean, let's say, you know, for instance, something like ChatGPT is always spitting something out that's at a 10th grade level, just off the top of my head. Well, if you've got a student who's moving from 8th grade to 12th grade, and all they're doing is turning out ChatGPT text, how would you gauge their improvement? And that, I think, is the real thing we're confronting right now. Yeah, our, our systems, as I mentioned before, are pretty much made up. And so we're just trying to do the best we can. And what we're really afraid of is that we're not going to be able to tell when a student has written something via uh, AI or whether they've actually done it. And and that belies a bigger problem, right? That belies a, a problem with really understanding who these kids are. As I mm -hmm. heard one teacher quip, if my students started turning in chat GPT stuff, I would be able to tell because I read all their work already. And that I have is, heard that in my living room this week. <laughs> yes, that is very true. You you yeah. can tell when yes, somebody who's right. who's not at that level is suddenly doing that or. Well, and, and to be fair, Amy, you know, because they get a lot of um, a lot of students from out of the country who's you know, language skills vary quite a bit. If you go from someone who, you know, struggles a little bit with English just because of, you know, where they are in their learning curve, and all of a sudden they're turning in perfectly constructed English sentences. Yeah. It's not that hard to figure out. Mm -hmm. And is that necessarily a bad thing? So let me share a brief story about, right. uh, about my daughter with Down syndrome, who uh, is able to communicate with her iPad using the predictive text in uh, Apple's operating system so much better via text than she is in real mm, life. Sure. Let me just say that is a huge blessing because she has beautiful and wonderful things in her heart that she cannot express. 
and using these tools to make it so that she can communicate what's truly in her heart is an amazing, amazing thing that I am exceptionally grateful for because it means something real to me as her dad to see that happening. Sure. sure. And so that's not, even that example you gave, that's not a bad thing because maybe just maybe that person has that ability in their native tongue and needs the translation to help them really express who they are and it can help them in a, in a powerful way. That and kind I of completely, stuff I completely awesome. agree. I absolutely agree with you. And and just to be clear, mine was simply for the illustrious yes. purpose of detecting the change <laughs> in yeah. text that people get. No, I, I absolutely agree. And, and it is the perfect occasion to put down the obvious caveat that if I went to any other country on this planet and yeah. tried to communicate in the local language, I would need Google translate. Absolutely. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so I would definitely be taking advantage of these tools. Uh, sure. Even, yeah. even if I went back to Russia where I am fluent in Russian, I would still need help uh, because it's been so long since I've been there, but I would take advantage of them and we, we would expect anybody to. So let's look at this, uh, this brief, briefly look at this uh, thing from Peninsula School District. And sure. uh, this one I think is just really powerful because they start with recognizing uh, that they say, we view AI as a tool that can intensify the human element in education. Mm. Like it's right there. Philosophy, yeah. It is. It's saying, look, we, we think that the human element is the most important thing. We think that AI can help intensify that and make it better. And so we are, we're going to double down on things that bring more humanity to our schools. Uh, that's great. And if AI does that, then let's go for it. What, what else did you take out of this one? You know, I think, and you alluded to this, honestly, Jethro, that the positivity of their approach is so refreshing, you know, and, and the other thing that I took away from this, and we've talked about ethics repeatedly on this podcast, the the importance of ethics and ethical AI use is woven throughout this entire policy. And I, I wish more schools would do that, not just for AI, but honestly, for the use of technology more broadly. Um, so I would really encourage people to take a look at this. Um, just, just listen to their concluding paragraph. AI is a potent tool that can dramatically improve education by offering personalized, inclusive, and compelling learning experiences when used responsibly and ethically. However, the essential value of human wisdom, judgment, and connection remains at the heart of our educational philosophy. That is absolutely spot on. And the other thing I like, which I am sure is no accident, is that this echoes the A-plus framework that you were talking about at the beginning of this show. It's it's really a terrific thing. Uh, yeah, it is. And as I was reading through this uh, this this policy here, I was thinking, man, this hits the things that I was, mm -hmm. was talking Absolutely. about with a plus. I, I had no part in doing this. I had no communication with them or anything like that. So that connection was pu purely coincidental, I'm sure. And, um, and I'm just grateful that, that they're moving forward in this direction. One of the things that is interesting is down at the bottom, they have resources and they have citations and, what I like is that when you look at the citations, they are links to uh, chat GPT mm -hmm. conversations that basically help them frame this sharing the prompts they used. Mm -hmm. And it's great that uh, OpenAI made that possible for you to be able to go through and look at them. And so you can look at one of them and just see what it was that they were thinking. And so it gives a, a fairly long prompt explaining uh, different things. And it brings in some of these algorithmic discrimination protections and safe and effective systems. And they already did a lot of work around this. And you can see like the, uh, the, the lack of capitalization and the, this is not like a perfectly formatted document mm -hmm. they put in there as the prompt. Uh, but they, they did a lot to say, this is what we think. And then they use the AI to help make it a readable, understandable thing that 
could communicate what they really wanted and, you know, highlighted, uh, they, they made some changes to it as well and didn't just straight copy and paste it, but then gave, um, you know, for example, they said the electric bike metaphor is not a good one. There's a difference between electric bike and a robotic vacuum in terms of human interaction. And that is what that part should state. Also, you're an expert in universal design for learning and your tie of AI into the UDL framework is not high quality. Please update those sections. And so like that yeah. kind of feedback to the system, you can see how they got to where they did based on the different prompts they used, which is a really uh, a neat thing to do uh, that I'm, I'm, I'm glad to see that they're, that they're sharing that as well. So you can see what, uh, what it looks like. It, I, I agree with you completely. And, and I really would urge listeners to go to those links in the uh, Peninsula School District policy and, and look at the interactions with the drafters and the chat GPT AI as an example of how to interact with this technology. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Because honestly, Jethro, it seems to me that one of the ways that this could evolve is that essentially we're teaching kids how to be effective supervisors mm -hmm. of this technology. And, and this is where it's going to get interesting because obviously the person who was doing this originally has quite a fair, quite a bit of training background information, you know, they have a goal in mind, so on and so forth. All of those are human inputs to this algorithm. But then they also had the capability to analyze what was coming out of the algorithm and ask it to make changes. And so that seems to me to be ultimately one of the goals of education is getting students to the place where they're competent in doing that. It's not bad necessarily for them to use this tool. It's like, you know, as I was saying, I went in for a, an exam of my shoulder. At some point, I may want the doctor to use an MRI. He can keep poking me all he wants. Yeah. But he's, got, he's got this great tool to use. We wouldn't ask him to not use it. Yeah. But then the question becomes, can he interpret the results properly and evaluate the output? And that's what kids yeah. need to do. Yeah, for sure. And and that is that is the the skill set that we need to be teaching them that AI doesn't do your work for you, but it could help you do your work. And, mm -hmm. and you can't turn over responsibility of that work to the AI because that's not, that's not, a, that's not good for you to do. Um, in, <laughs> right. in one mm -hmm. of my uh, podcasts on transformative principle, I talked with Kevin Schindel, who's a government and history teacher over in Maryland. And he said that AI is an ecosystem, not a tool. And I really appreciated that approach because it helps underscore that when you adopt these right. these systems and tools that you're really adopting more than just the tool itself. You're adopting a, a belief system and a practice. And And I just want to um, highlight real quick a, uh, a po blog post by Jason Fried, who uh, is one of the co-founders of 37 signals, which makes Basecamp and Hey email. And they are oh, yeah, right. yeah. very opinionated about what they believe and what they're doing. And, and he, in this blog post, 73% of what is, um, is basically saying something very similar that every tool you adopt has ramifications on what you're doing and decisions that you make. And, and it matters that you, that you you make things work well for you and for your situation and that you don't just take whatever somebody else does and thinks that it is that it is gospel and i i really like that approach as well well then i would close with my two favorite words with respect to ai which are critical thinking because that <laughs> <laughs> at the end of the day if we're not able to think critically about what is put in front of us then, you know, at that point, really, the robots have one, haven't they? I mean, right. that's what we need to be aware of. So I'm guessing, Jethro, that this will not be our last conversation about AI. No, definitely not. But I think we'll have to put a pin in this one yeah. and wrap it up. I am fascinated by this. I do want to give a shout out to AIleader.com. Do you want to close with a yeah. quick summer? Yep. AIleader.info. That's where Oops, you sorry. go. My That's bad. all right. 
AIleader.info to where you go to learn all about AI so that you understand how it works so that you can make better decisions. I've got reviews of tools in there, different things like that, um, and basic explanations of how it works. The idea is that you learn about it in three-minute master classes, so you don't have to spend forever and ever trying to figure it out. You don't need to become a data scientist or an AI information specialist. You just need to get a basic understanding so you know what it's really capable of. Uh, so you can check that out at AIleader.info. Would love to have you join me there. Fantastic, Jethro. Well, we will have so much more to say about this in the months and weeks to come, but that wraps up this episode of the Cybertraps podcast. In the coming weeks and months, we'll continue our coverage of emerging trends in a variety of areas, including digital misconduct, cyber safety, cybersecurity, privacy, and the challenges of high-tech parenting. Along the way, we'll talk to a growing collection of international experts who are helping us to understand the risks and the rewards of digital technology. You can find the Cybertraps podcast on all of your favorite podcast apps. We hope that you'll share the show with your friends and colleagues and reach out to us if you have guest, question, or topic suggestions. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, I'm at Jethro Jones and Fred is at Cybertraps. And if you're still listening, man, you must have loved this show. Please leave us a five-star <laughs> rating and review in your podcast service. We appreciate having you with us and look forward to having you join us for our next episode. There are lots of solutions out there for giving students what they need when they need it. But when do they actually do all of those things? You need flexible time. When added into your master's schedule, flex time enables students to get extra help or intervention, meet with teachers, make up work, get physical exercise, and try new enrichment offerings. If you're thinking of giving it a try, check out MyFlex Learning, which unlocks the benefits of flexible time without all the headaches you get with it usually. Its intuitive design and SIS integration makes implementation and training a breeze. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com BE. Do you want to save time on prep work, increase student achievement for all of your students, reliably meet tier one standards? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com B to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve these goals. That's IXL.com B-E.